Thanks for joining us for the Bread of Life. We are convinced that the Bible is God's holy word, perfect and without error. Its perfection delivers what is good and beneficial for those who hear it and heed it. It is perfect for it leads us to the perfect one, the Lord Jesus. He is the bread of life. Let us seek him together through God's word. Now here's our teacher, Joel Van Hoogen. In the Bible, the reaction of persons when God comes down and reveals himself is almost always that of dread. But in Hebrews 12.22, we're introduced to a reality that God has brought all true believers into. A reality where God doesn't come down to us, but where God raises us up to Him into His holy presence. And what we find is not dread in our reactions, but festivity, praise, rest. God had come down, and God had made His presence known at place, and it was powerful and potent and fearful. And Oh, you'll read other passages where this takes place and happens on other occasions. You, you might remember the story of Elijah, where Elijah is seeking the presence of God, or God is bringing Elijah into his presence. And God brings Elijah to a cave, and there's a huge earthquake, and there's a wind that comes that rips the mountain apart, and there's a fire that descends upon the mountain, and, and Elijah is not stirred by it. But then God manifests himself to Elijah in a still, small voice. Elijah comes out to the base of the cave and he's trembling and he's shaking. He wraps the mantle around his head so he cannot see because he's filled with dread and fear at the manifestation of God coming down upon the earth and revealing himself. That's what happened at Mount Sinai. But in this passage, in this reference, God is not coming down and touching an earthly thing to reveal himself. Instead, in this passage, God is drawing. He's not coming down and revealing his presence and his power. But in this passage, we are being lifted up by God's power and brought into his presence. And we're entering into his presence in the highest of all places, in the holy place where God dwells. And wonderfully, on this occasion, we're not driven away from his presence. We're not covering our faces in fear. We're not running in dread. Instead, what happens is, as God reveals himself and God draws us up his presence, we discover that God does not dwell in isolation. That this high and holy place called Zion is also a place where he is surrounded by his angels and where he is surrounded by his people and where he is worshipped and he's adored and where his majesty and his love commingle together. And all those who see it and experience it are filled with notes of celebration and praise. It says it's the city of Zion. This is in contrast to Sinai, which was this solitary place where Moses trembling went up and met with God alone. Here is the highest place and it's not a solitary mountain, it's a city. It's filled with social activity. There are people there living their lives and expressing their vitality in His presence. It's a place of social gathering. It's there that there's the movement of life and the thronging of life in His presence. And that's where God calls us to in the highest of all places. He calls us into community before Him and community with Him. Remember in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, that we said that God through Jesus Christ has made us sit in heavenly places. Ephesians 1 speaks of a point in time in which God will bring all things together in Himself. It says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, He, speaking of God, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth in Him. And the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, 
is the place of God's uniting of all things that is His. All things that is His by His saving grace unto Himself. So you're there in Christ if you've placed your faith in Him as your Savior. And so are others as well. And God is anticipating not all that He's drawn to Himself in time past but in time future. All things that have come under the sway and the power of His redeeming grace are brought into one place. And this is Mount Zion. The picture where Christ is priest and Christ is king and where there is majesty and security realized in Him alone. We are being told you have arrived in the city of this living God. He's ever present before you, alive, ministering in your place. And you live before Him. The fact is that we live as pilgrims and sojourners on this earth. The fact is, is that whatever you've accumulated for yourself, whatever you're holding on to, wherever you dwell is a temporary domicile. It's a temporary domain. You are, in a sense, and this is particularly true of the Christian, you are pilgrims living in temporary housing. But what's being described here is the permanent dwelling place that you have with the living God that He's prepared for you. Not an austere, lonely mountain where you shake before the law and where your sin is found out and you shrink back from God, but a city where you thrive, where God's redeemed live together. And the Bible says one day that this great city that you can't see right now, that you've been given occupancy and you've arrived in, this city will one day, four square, come down upon a new earth and it will settle in that place and there will move in and out from this heaven come down upon earth to a redeemed and renewed creation all around us, living and exalting and recreating in the presence of God forever and ever secure, secure, eternally secure with Him. And the passage says that's where you've come. That's where you are. Let's look at the next statement here. It says, to an innumerable company of angels and to the general assembly. The first thing that you come to when you enter into the city, the first view that you have is a city filled with an unnumbered throng of holy angels. There are thousands of them. There are thousands upon thousands of these angels in this scene. The ESV and the NIV have the right translation here. In the KJV, the King James Version, you'll see the general assembly is a phrase that's given right after it identifies this gathering of angels. In other words, you say you have all these angels, but they're not doing anything. They're just a body of angels. And then it says to the general assembly, and it's applied to the next group of individuals that are going to be introduced to us. But the ESV and the NIV have it right. That phrase, general assembly, there actually means in festal gathering, and it's referencing and it's referring to the angels themselves. Here are these innumerable myriads upon myriads or thousands upon thousands of angels gathering in festal or rejoicing assembly together. It's a gathering of angels who are offering up their praise and glorifying God, and they're all before us in this great city, assembled together. Think about it for a moment. The first time that man is introduced to angels, it appears, is after Adam and Eve fell in sin and they're thrown out of the garden. And after they're thrown out of the garden, God appoints two angels with flaming swords to stand before the entrance of the garden so that they not come back into the garden to eat of the tree of life. In other words, in a sense, if you might realize that the garden, in a sense, was the expression of God's temple set down upon the earth, they're being denied access back into the presence of God. When the 
tabernacle was built and they built a curtain to guard the holy place from the most holy place where only the high priest could go once to mediate for the people, a representative of the great high priest and what Jesus Christ has done for us, there was a curtain set up and on that curtain was woven together the images of these two angels with flaming swords, cherubims, blocking the way from sinful men back into the presence of God. Angels were an expression of God's judgment Angels were a restraining force upon sinful men seeking to draw near to God. You go through the Bible and you find the passages where angels are revealed to men and people know that they're angels, there's a dread that comes upon them and fear that comes upon them. On certain occasions, they'll bow down to even worship the angels and the angels will tell them to get up to worship God only. That's what we read in the book of Revelation. But there's a fear and dread in their presence. At the base of Mount Sinai, we're told when God revealed himself that uh, you might remember it's in Exodus chapter 19, that there was a trumpet blast that took place and that the trumpet blast went on for a long time, it says, and that the trumpet blast got louder and louder as darkness came upon the mountain, as fire came upon the mountain, as a great wind or storm shook the mountain with a great earthquake and God made his presence known I believe that trumpet sound was the blast of the angels signaling the judgment of God. There's a reason to believe that. If you go to the book of Revelation, you'll see that in the midst of the ends of the ages, when God is bringing his final judgments upon the earth, that God will signal various judgments that take place upon the earth. And those judgments are represented in a series of trumpet blasts. So in chapters 8, 9, and 11 of the book of Revelation, you have the trumpet blast of the angels signaling a series of judgments on the earth. And the first trumpet blast comes and a third of all of the vegetation on the earth is destroyed and all the trees are destroyed upon the earth. And the second blast takes place and the seas, a third of the sea is filled with blood and a third of the living creatures in the sea are destroyed. And a third trumpet blast comes and the water, the drinking water of the earth is brought under judgment, and a third of the water is poisoned, and it brings death to all those who drink it. And on and on go these trumpet blasts until the final seventh blast takes place. And at that point in time, God is revealed from His temple, filled with wrath, coming to judge the earth and destroy all those who have brought destruction upon the earth. And so the sound of the trumpet blast of the angels is a signal of God's judgment coming. And I... I mentioned to you that at Mount Sinai, with that trumpet blowing, it had to be the blast of angels blowing. And let me read to you a couple passages that would indicate that. Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, speaks of the day when at Mount Sinai, God appeared to give the law, and it says that the angels were with him at that time. It says, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir, and he shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands, myriads of holy ones. From his right hand then came a fiery law for them. Again, in Psalm 68, verse 17, we read this. The chariots of God are twenty thousands and even, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them as in Sinai. There on Mount Sinai. These dreadful angels are blowing their blasts and horns of judgment and the people are filled with fear. They're mighty and they're powerful and they reflect the holiness of God. And we tremble when we only come to God by way of the law and in our own power and our own strength before them. But in this passage, we arrive in their company 
and we're not filled with dread and we're not trembling and they are rejoicing. And we're brought into the company of these great angels rejoicing with them. I don't know if you might be able to grasp this, but someday we'll realize it fully and completely. We'll stand shoulder to shoulder with the mighty angels of God, bowing in worship and praise of the triune God and worshiping Him as salvation and rejoicing. And there's not a trace here. There's not a trace of a response on our part of fear of judgment. We're with the angels celebrating. Here's the next thing it says, And the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. The church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. The word firstborn is a term of great endearment. It was to the firstborn that the inheritance was given. Now we love all of our children, and we have fond memories of all of our children, but usually if you ask a person to account what it was like on the day they were born, if you have a number of them, you, you remember the first one, and then it all kind of starts to bleed together a little bit. We love all of our children, and none of them are our favorites, but there was a time when one of them was our favorite, the first one. Once the second one came, they all had to have equal footing, but there was only one that was our favorite, right? It was the first one, the firstborn. In the Bible, the firstborn was the one who was given a significant portion of the inheritance more than the others. Interestingly enough, Jesus Christ is called the firstborn of God, that is, he is his specially loved one. And the Bible tells us that we're co-heirs with Christ. That means that we have been brought into all the full inheritance of Jesus himself. I'm so glad that you've joined us for this broadcast of the Bread of Life. Each weekday, it's our privilege to share with you the food from the table at the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho. For a copy of this message or to learn more about our fellowship, call us at 208-331-4096 or go to breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next broadcast, the Lord bless you.